We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we work and learn, and pay respect to the First Nations peoples and their elders past, present, and future. We're recording on Gadigal land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thanks for checking out this third and final episode of our trip back to the release of one of Australia's favourite songs, Paul Kelly's How to Make Gravy. I'm your host, Steve Bell. If you haven't checked out the first couple of episodes, please go back and give them a crack, because that way this will all make a lot more sense. Hello Dan, it's Joe here, I hope you're keeping well, it's the 21st of December, now they're ringing the last bells, if I get good behaviour, I'll be out of here by July. Won't you kiss my kids on Christmas Day? Please let them cry. That rendition of How to Make Gravy is taken from the album Going Your Way, the document of the wonderful live collaboration between Paul and the great Neil Finn when they toured Australia together in 2013. What a treat that was. So we've heard why and how How to Make Gravy came into existence, but why has it resonated so much with Australian people? It's a great song, no doubt, but Paul's got a lot of great songs, none of which are treated with the almost universal reverence afforded gravy. In Stuart Coop's 2020 biography of Paul, simply titled Paul Kelly, it's a great read, there's a really cool quote from David Frick, the long-standing US editor of Rolling Stone, respected critic in his own right, and also a long-standing Paul Kelly fan who had this to offer. How to Make Gravy may possibly be my favourite Paul Kelly song. It's not so much a song about Christmas as it is a song about longing. It transcends holiday. It transcends setting. And what he does is narrow all these big things down into simple interactions. You have Gravy Day in Australia. Springsteen can't do that. He had to borrow July 4. With Dylan, no one goes happy like a Rolling Stone day. It shows he's connecting with people in a very intimate way, but on a large scale. Connecting with people in a very intimate way, but on a large scale, that seems to be the key. Everyone can see themselves in this song, even though it's delivered in a way, as far as you could possibly be in terms of pandering to mass acceptance, a long meandering narrative with no chorus. It's almost a vignette in the way it drops you straight into a phone call with no context, and you're left to piece things together as you gradually drip-fed more information. We talked about this on the Triffords Born Sandy Devotional podcast, as it's a device Dave McComb loved to use, though it's hardly his sole domain. Back when Gravy came out in the mid-90s, Paul had been going through a bit of a rough patch commercially. It happens. His previous album, Deeper Water, had stalled at number 40 on the Australian album chart, his worst result in a decade. It's a great album, but it didn't connect like his others. His support from community radio and Triple J had fallen away as well, until Gravy came out. John O'Donnell, these days head of Paul's label EMI, but back then at Sony, who were about to take over Paul's distribution, remembers it having a significant impact. He didn't really find himself a home for a while there. You know, musically, I mean. Um, Yeah, I think he was, and leading into Gravy, his career was waning. Um, You know, he, he... released Hidden Things, but then he'd done um, Wanted Man and Deeper Water, and there were great songs on those records, um, particularly on Deeper Water. But, um, yeah, Wanted Man, Deeper Water, though, you could feel that the heat was coming off, Paul. And um, not that he was struggling, but it just it felt like he was going into that long plateau that so many artists do. And I really think that, 
How to Make Gravy is is one of those songs and maybe the song that slowly and surely single-handedly turned things around for Paul. What I was going to say is he... um, he started getting play on Triple J again. And that, again, that was a real turning point. I think on Wanted Man and Deeper Water, I don't believe from memory a bit now, I don't believe they were playing his music on Triple J. How to Make Gravy, Arnold Frollo's pro- programmed that song a lot. Um, and I went to, um, he was being roasted. There used to be this thing, Peter Dawkins, who had Parkinson's disease, put on these annual roasts where all money raised would go to his charity, which was raising funds for research into Parkinson's disease. And Arnold Frollo's was kind of being honoured slash roasted. Um, He'd asked for Paul Kelly to play at that. And Paul was just playing acoustic. And I chatted to Paul before it. And I think he was, you know, going to play To Her Door or Before Too Long or maybe Deeper Water, the song. Um, And I said, I think you should really play How to Make Gravy, that song. And this is late 90s, you know, probably 98, 99. I said, that song? Arnold started playing that again. And I don't know the politics of what was happening inside Triple J, but he probably you know, put his foot down and said, I really think this is a special song. And um, and they played it a lot. And it didn't lead to it exploding into being a big hit or anything, but I think it centred on this incredible trajectory that it's been on for 25 years now. Um, and, you know, he I, I love that he, and he won't remember this, but he... He changed his set that night and put that song in. He was only doing three songs. So, um, and it was, I thought, very appropriate and really special. And he got it. He really got it. He said, you're right, you know, kind of, you know, I should. And he did. Probably um, Triple R in Melbourne and, you know, Triple Z and and community stations around the country would have been supporting it. But, you know, it... It was designed to be on, mostly to be on a Christmas album. And as you say, it doesn't have a chorus. It isn't an upbeat song in the way that so many Christmas carols or Christmas songs are. Um, it's become more upbeat, if you like. But it's, you know, it's a guy who's, yeah, it's set in prison. So it's, um, it's got everything going against it in so many ways. But you know, it's such an emotional song. It's such a beautifully written song. I, I played it a couple of times, as we all do, but I played it a couple of times today and I just looked through the lyrics and they're gobsmackingly good. They're just, you know, it's, it is kind of poetry. It's so neatly and tightly written um, and then it's so beautifully played that the guitar strum that opens the song is just so warm. It's like you've come in halfway through a song. It's so warm and inviting. And then there's a little shimmer of um, keyboards that come in, very subtle, and it just it just nails you. It's a beautiful production. Now, all that radio love is great, and being back in the Triple J fold was a long-term win, no doubt, exposing Paul to new generations of younger fans. But Gravy still didn't chart and was just on an obscure EP. How did it get so known and beloved? I think a lot of it has to do with the stars aligning perfectly in the form of the Songs from the South compilation, subtitled Paul Kelly's Greatest Hits, which came out in May 1997, less than six months after How to Make Gravy. And Gravy, despite being far from a hit at that point, ended up being track 20 of the chronological track list, the last single to make the cut. And that compilation went gangbusters. Here's John. I think you've nailed a really good point there because Paul never sold a truckload of records per album. I think he'd only had one album, maybe two, that had gone platinum. So he wasn't a particularly big seller, but people knew those songs. Maybe they didn't know that they knew them. Um, maybe over 
you know, 15 to 20 years, they'd soaked into people's skin the way, you know, through osmosis, the way things do. But I was working at um, Sony Music at the time, as you know, and um, we took over the distribution of the Mushroom label for that period. So the Christmas, the um, Greatest Hits album, Songs from the South, came out via um, Sony Music. And I remember watching it and, and seeing Paul play shows at that time. Um, and it got this incredible groundswell because there were lots of great songs out there, more than enough for a Greatest Hits album, but people hadn't bought them on their individual albums. So when it's your classic case of when a Greatest Hits album really, really works. And it went on, you know, in its first year, it did something like 300,000 copies. He'd never sold over 70,000, maybe once, maybe twice. So it was gobsmacking how big that record became. But he was sort of a bit under undercooked. Um, and that's why it, all of these things came together, a really good marketing plan, et cetera, and Wooshka, the whole thing took off. Um, yeah, it was really, really incredibly special to see that. And putting gravy on there, you're totally right. It, it brought it to an, an audience that hadn't heard that song. And, um, and it was fresh and it was new and it's a classic. And, um, and I remember talking to a very big artist going, well, if Paul Kelly's best of can do 250 or 300,000, imagine what ours can do. And it came out, I won't say who the artist was, but it came out and it sold considerably less than um, songs from the South. But it was the coming together of a lot of things um, that gave Paul his first big record. Didn't go number one, though. It went to number two. You know what, again, it, it, it's testament to Paul. You know, he's he's been one of those artists who just believes in what he does and He's not ruffled by the charts or by sales. He loves them, but he's not focused on that stuff. And um, But when it came, it came in a big way. And I, I believe that record now is up to around 800,000 copies across its three iterations, but um, it's, it's pretty incredible. The three iterations John's referring to are the original Songs from the South from 97, Volume 2 from 2008, and then the combined version titled Songs from the South 1985 to 2019, which came out in 2019 and did in fact make it to number one. Back in 97, Eleanor Mackay was still at Mushroom, where she was a label manager, and she also believes that having all of Paul's popular songs available in one place, Songs from the South, proved a massive deal in the age before the rise of the internet. If you actually go back and look at, you know, those iconic Paul Kelly records, they they don't they're not actually big hits the way you think they must have been. For those songs to be so iconic, you go, oh, that must have been a massive record, but they weren't. You know, like and Paul didn't get a lot of commercial airplay, um, and you know, I was thinking about songs from the south and going, you know, that the things. I think the reason that record worked so well and it's sort of like a album version of why something like Gravy works so well, it's the weight of, it. you know, it's the body of work that comes with it. And so Paul has this standing that is way bigger than any of the individual hits that he's actually had. So, you know, it, I think... Songs from the South was, you know, his biggest selling record in terms of hits, like a, a hit record. But I remember, you know, doing his record, you know, reporting to his manager about his record sales. And consistently every quarter, Paul would sell, you know, just say 100,000 albums, but he'd sell them across eight records, you know. So it was never like that, you know, the big smash hit. It just, it's like a slow burn with him. And Gravy was definitely one of those. And I don't know, for me, I think it's the story. 
Like you feel like you know the family and, you know, the way Paul would always have changed words around when he played it live so that, you know, he changed whether the guy had, you know, bad aftershave to, you know, whatever. It was kind of, it felt like you were inside the story and that's why people really related to it. But I, I definitely think you're right. Getting on the, the songs from the South really put it probably in front of, you know, a massive audience because that's the other thing with Paul, obviously, is he spans generations. So people kind of, you know, there are the people who are in on that gossip level or whatever, and then there's, you know, younger people who've come on board, you know, when he's done a collaboration with somebody. And when you get something like a Songs from the South, they all come together. So suddenly that, I guess that track got a whole lot more ears on it. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Paul's like a little mystery in terms of the way you think things should work. <laughs> you know, having a commercial or having a successful career in music, Paul doesn't have the kind of obvious, you know, the big smash hits the way, you know, like you look at a Kylie or something, you know, it's, it's a very much a cumulative thing with him. Shane O'Mara, who played guitar on Gravy, picked up on the increased awareness of the song in live sets after the compilation came out. I, I remember performing it post-recording because, as I recall, that was a single, but then Paul finally agreed with Mushroom, with Gudinski, to do a best of, and that was the track on the best of record, the first best of record, and the, everyone knew the song. So that's the incredible thing about touring, sort of from the second tour of when that was released, everyone knew the song because it was embraced back then so sort of much. Father's Day, Christmas, birthdays, you name it. A lot of dads were given songs from the South as presents over the next few years, the ones who hadn't already bought it themselves anyway. Paul's crowds aren't an exclusively male domain, far from it, but a Paul Kelly best-of CD still seems a sort of manly gift. From that point on, a lot of long car drives by a lot of Australian families was soundtracked by songs from the South, the last song of which is How to Make Gravy, a song not just about Christmas down under, but one touching on notions of family, mateship, tradition and culture, and generations of Australians were absorbing this in front and back seats everywhere. Rising Sydney singer-songwriter Alex Lynn, better known as Alex the Astronaut, made her own feelings about Paul Kelly abundantly clear on the track I Believe in Music from her 2017 EP, To Whom It May Concern, which starts like this. For my seventh birthday, I was given a CD player and I'd play Paul Kelly again and again and again. Seven. That's pretty young. Here's Alex confirming that. Yeah, I was... um lucky enough to have a pretty early Paul Kelly education from my parents. Um, they had a couple of Paul's albums in their, in our car when we were really little. Um, so yeah, I kind of got it put into me by osmosis from like, I think, I feel like it was in the car when I was five, but it was probably playing before I can remember as well. And did it connect with you from a young age? Yeah, it's funny. It's kind of, I think um, Paul's had such an influence on me because I think his song, They Thought I Was Asleep, was one of the first songs I remember, like, properly thinking about. Um, yeah, for me, when I hear songs that I really, they kind of just, I don't know, stick with me. And I think I would have been, like, maybe five, and the reason I remembered was because he was, he was writing about what it was like to be a kid in the backseat of your parents' car. And... I think that was when I, you were starting to have that brain development where you understand you're a person and other people are people and they have thoughts and all of that developmental stuff. And, yeah, I remember thinking, wow, he's obviously not a child who's in the back of the car anymore, but I understand what he's saying and I'm there now. So that's pretty funny. And, yeah, the fact that I don't know how old he was when he wrote that song, but, an adult man can make a five-year-old kid go, yeah, I get what you mean. He's pretty amazing. And I think that that's a testament to Paul's talent of 
being able to relate to anyone and, and get it across. Alex herself is fast becoming a fine lyricist and she believes that Paul's songs have played a part in this regard. Paul, I feel like, was the kind of litmus test. I remember, like, occasionally when I'm writing, I'll, if, especially if I have someone that I've been listening to their music a lot, I'll be like, what do you think that they would think would be wrong with this song? And, like, that's, like, I feel like something I did from when I was little, like, especially learning to write, I remember going, I don't think Paul would be that obvious with what he was saying if he was to write about this. Or I remember those little, like, things that I don't know how I learnt them, but, yeah, I feel like Paul has a is the master of subtlety with his lyrics and he can take you somewhere without making it very obvious. Um, and But the imagery is always very, very clear. And I think that's something I've always tried to hang on to when I'm writing is am I being clear enough and am I being subtle enough? Um, and am I including enough details that makes this real for the people that are listening? And I feel like like an example for they thought I was asleep is like your, your brothers and sisters fighting because that always happens in a long drive and I don't know what woke me up, maybe a country song or a big truck. It's like you can kind of remember being in the radio, listening to the radio when you're really little, but the fact that they change, the radio changes depending on where you are. It's just like, it's a subtle detail that I'm like, he's the master of. And I definitely have tried to try to use that skill and, and pick up on those little details that will help people transport. And of course, how to make gravy is well and truly on Alex's radar. I remember it playing. It always played like, obviously you're not in charge of the ox cord until you're like 18 or older at home, but like, yeah, I do remember like family events and that was just a big sing-along song and I remember just like it was funny that everyone really loved that song and sang it together. I think that, I don't know, just the lyrics are amazing and, yeah, I've never experienced being in prison but like he gets he gets that, he gets that feeling across of like, I don't know, just all the subtle things of like, um yeah when he brings the line and when he brings the main line of who's going to make the gravy like he's saying this is what I've con- this is what I contribute this is what I do for our family and I can't do that from here so how how am I going to still play a part and like it's so heartbreaking and you just hear it every time that line comes in it's just a wave and it's such a random line and I don't know how he thought of it but it's it's big. It's a massive, massive song. And it's, yeah, yeah, I love it. I think that's the beauty in Paul's storytelling is yeah, you can take away any of, you can take away so many things from it. And I think like, um, yeah, the, the, the way he portrays a family is something that I always found so amazing in that song or the little people or the little stories, the little people, those details even though they might not be the details from your family, it's kind of like that intimacy of like, oh, well, um, Roger, I'm even going to miss Roger, even though he's a bit of a dick, I'm going to miss him. <laughs> like, And, yeah, you can feel that it's real. Like, yeah, I love that. I think Paul Kelly is probably the only person in the world that could make a devastating Christmas song about a person being in prison, missing their family, <laughs> like, about and about gravy like just such an anthem of I don't know family Christmas and yeah I don't know either I don't remember the first time I like when you asked that I've got no idea when I first heard it it just sunk into my brain I think that's everyone with Paul Kelly it's just like we all know the songs it's just I don't know what I heard them but someone just programmed them into me I think. Melbourne singer-songwriter Greta Ray is another rising star who's quickly making a name in the song stakes. In 2016, she won the prestigious Vander and Young Global Songwriting Competition while still in her teens, and she too remembers being introduced to Paul's music, including Gravy, at a very young age. I have really vivid memories of that song, actually, um, because a lot of, I guess, what probably was the very roots of me wanting to be a songwriter was spending time in the car with my family and listening to the music that my parents would play. 
Um, and, you know, the car is a very kind of like uh, reflective space, especially for a young kid in the back seat looking out the windows and imagining things and pondering life. And um, so you actually, you know, well, for me, I focused on the stories behind the songs that were played to me in the car very deeply. And of course, Gravy tells such a specific story. Um, and I think when I was younger as well, I definitely would want to tune in more to songs that had lyrics that showed the fact that the songs were Australian, that they were relatable, that they were singing about where I was from. Um, and so, yeah, me and my little sister Holly were really hooked on the whole story um, behind that song um, and kind of had our parents unpack it to us multiple times in the car. Greta believes that the summer Christmas angle, something pretty unique as far as Christmas songs go, also gives Gravy a point of difference. Christmas songs, for the most part, sing so much about kind of like, oh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, you know, there's snow falling from the sky, don't go outside because it's too cold, snow's up to your knees, all like all these lyrics that come to mind, very American, like very kind of snuggly, wintry, cosy songs, which we love, but of course, like, as much as we can play those songs on Christmas Day, there's not really too many that accurately portray the nature of a boiling hot Australian day and still having a roast, which is a really strange concept when you think about it. And But there's something so special and, you know, nostalgic for, for us about that way of celebrating Christmas in Australia. And I think having it be in song, you know, it, it basically kind of, in an interesting way, I guess, because of the narrative of the song, touching on the details like you know all of the family members coming in from different states and all of the kind of small talk that you have with family that you haven't seen like it really in a in a way sings of every Australian Christmas and like what goes on in those family dynamics and it being in this sweltering heat and it's just so specific to kind of where we're from I suppose. And Greta also reckons that those years of listening to and absorbing Paul's lyrics have also seeped into her art. I'm a pop artist, but all of my um, inspiration comes from the greats in terms of singer-songwriters, Paul being one of them. So I was hugely influenced by his records, Missy Higgins, Paul Simon, Laura Marling, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, like all of these incredible storytellers. Um, and yeah, Paul's storytelling has, as I said, been something that I fixated on since I was a, a kid and, and wanted to tell my own stories. And I think that something that's really magnificent about Paul's work, which I'm kind of yet to explore in my own craft that I think that, you know, he does so magnificently and everyone knows this is being able to take other people's stories um, and tell them in a way that, that keeps the story feeling really personal, even though they're not necessarily things that, you know, he's experienced, but making it, yeah, I mean, it, it's a real gift in that sense because we all get to enjoy such important stories in a musical sense um, and for them to to really move us, I guess, but they're not coming from, from his life all the time, which is really interesting. Obviously, it's not just emerging artists who have been affected by Gravy, and you can tell this by the amount of established Australian acts who have covered the song over the years, always the sign of a classic. I'll give you a little taste of just a few of these covers in chronological order, starting with former Australian crawl frontman James Rain, who released this version on his 2005 and the Horse You Rode In on album, perhaps, but maybe not, homage to Paul's amazing cover of Ozzy Crawl's Reckless from back in the late 80s. Hey Dan, it's Joe here I hope you're keeping well it's the 21st of December Now they're ringing the last bell I get good behavior I'll be out of here by July Won't you kiss my kids on Christmas Day Acclaimed WA-based singer-songwriter John Butler has long been a gravy acolyte. In the past he's called the song Steeped in Modern Australian Culture and this version of Gravy was a bonus track from his band John Butler Trio's 2010 album April Uprising. I guess the brothers are driving down from Queensland Stella's flying in from the coasts they say it's gonna be 100 degrees and maybe even more, you know, but 
That ain't gonna stop the rose But who's gonna make the gravy? I bet it won't taste the same Just that flour salt, a little red wine And I top of tomato sauce for that sweetness And that extra taste in 2014, much-loved Torres Strait Islander artist Christine Arnoux released a version of Gravy on her Island Christmas album. Hello, Diane, it's Joy here. I hope you're keeping well. 21st of December Now I'll be ringing the last bell If I get good behavior I'll be out of here by July Won't you kiss the kids on Christmas Day In 2017, Tazzy Punk's Luca Brasi did a cracking gravy cover for Triple J's Like a Version. Brothers driving down from Queensland Stella's flying in from the coast Say it's gonna be a hundred degrees or more But that won't stop the roast and Who's gonna make the gravy now? I better won't say the same Just add flour, salt, a little red wine and Don't forget tomato sauce Sweetness and a tang Give my love to Angus Also in 2017, Aussie folk ensemble All Our Exes Live in Texas recorded this lovely version of Gravy for US label Bloodshot Records' 13 Days of Christmas compilation. resonated with a lot of great Aussie artists. But it's a song that can send a festival crowd into raptures as well. Alex recalls seeing Paul play Gravy at Splendour a couple of years ago and the crowd of all persuasion going bonkers. I was there too for this set and it was quite remarkable. It's funny how um, intergenerational it is. Like I remember Splendour maybe two years ago and I was standing at the sound desk um, watching and kind of all around me were all the all the demographics of people like there were families it was it was late at night but like people had stayed up with their kids and had them on their shoulders and stuff and Splendor in the Grass is a pretty rowdy festival so you could see that like these parents had like come there for Paul that day and there was also like a bunch of 18-ish year olds on a bunch of probably illegal substances and people drinking and singing and 
And everyone was mucking around a bit, I reckon. Like I remember them all just like getting a bit rowdy. It was a bit late and Paul just has this commanding presence and I think he went into how to make gravy and, yeah, it's just something. Like everyone just stopped and it's amazing how quickly he can start a sing-along without even asking and, like, yeah, I... I'll never forget that, like, especially with the little kids, like just, I was just watching over the little fence and watching the kids on the shoulders who kind of knew some of the words who were probably like four, like you can just see. And that's, I think, the power of really, really good writers of it goes on the generations, even if they weren't there at the time. John O'Donnell has also witnessed how to make gravy stop a crowd in their collective tracks. There's such a warmth to that, that opening guitar. It's such a beautiful little, you know, it's really simple, but it's, it just, you know, it's signature now. You can pick it up immediately, but it's so warm. And then the keyboard shimmers in and comes out a bit. And then, you know, when he says, hello, Dan, it's Joe here. He's just got you by the throat. It's, it's very emotional. I, you know, I half tear up just playing it now, walking around the streets. Um, and it's not Christmas and I'm not in jail and none of that stuff applies to me, but it, but it does. And I think another part of Paul's story that's added to all of his songs, but to this song maybe in particular, is that Paul goes back and plays to young audiences and, and does festival shows um, and he might be in the tent and not on the main stage, or he might be playing third last on Groove in the Mood. But he goes and does that intentionally, I, I believe, to pass his music on to younger generations. And it totally works. It completely works. He finds an audience there. And it's one of the great things to be standing in the GW McLennan tent at Splendour and see 18-year-old girls on their boyfriend's shoulders singing How to Make Gravy and getting emotional about it. It's really special. And, and again, he's, he and Bill Cullen have focused on doing that and they've just gone, we'll, prob- you know, we'll do it for less money than we should, could and should earn, but I want to pass those, these songs along to the next generation. And it's super smart. Um, it's very ballsy, you know, I don't know if that many other artists would do that um, and kind of take the hit, but he knows that there's a purpose to it and it's, it's incredibly smart and very cool. And, yeah, you know, I'm standing there in the crowd as a 59-year-old going, these children were born you know, kind of after Gravy was released. How do they know this song and how do they know these songs? And they certainly do. Bill Cullen that John mentioned there is Paul's current manager. Great bloke. Now, two people who have seen Gravy work its magic on a lot of crowds over the years are sisters Vicar and Linda Ball, beloved stars in their own right, but also long-term members of Paul's current band. Here's Vicar. Well, we didn't really have to learn anything because he sings it, always sing at the end. He's do-do-do-do-do-do. Our trick is trying to make the do 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 do's memorable. That's all we got to do. That's why when he sings the song live, we walk on, we sort of dance on because it's like, because, you know, he does this really long note, we just sort of dance on. It's like a kind of moment for us. It's like, come on, keep going, keep going, and then then we get in there. You know what I actually love, love, love watching when Paul does that song is watching the audience oh. and their reaction and how much that song means to them and how much they love it. And I'll never forget when we toured um, America a few years ago and we were somewhere, I can't remember where, but a lot of Australians turned up and might have been... Sorry, I can't remember, but one girl in particular, the minute Paul started playing gravy, she just burst into tears. And she stood at the front of the stage sobbing her heart out that we all started crying, you know, because she was homesick. She really missed home. 
And um, and you know, Paul was very moved by it, but she just she just couldn't control. It was like really ugly crying. <laughs> it was that kind of crying. It was like she was she she was she really missed home so much, and she just loved that song so much. And it was just, yeah, I'll never forget that. Mm-hmm. You know that you know again what a song can do and how it can make you feel. Because it's got that strong story. It's got that like it, you know you love it when you can understand what a song's about. Yeah. Message is really clear, uh, and it's also a bit of fun, you know. He's chucked in a recipe for goodness' sakes, <laughs> <laughs> and you know he mentions people's names, and you know it's that intricate kind of relationship between missing out and being jealous, and and you know trying to be bossy from where you are, you know, in prison. I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible song. It ticks so many boxes, you know. And it doesn't have a chorus, does it? No. Nah. But, yeah, the, boy, the boys really do, they enjoy playing that song. You watch it build, you know, it builds and builds and builds and, and yeah, that's what's beautiful. When we did Falls Festival, you remember that? It's in, in some, some vision on a lot of videos when we were at that concert singing and the, the crowd were going off. And it was like this tidal wave. It was the energy that they were throwing when he was playing gravy was just hitting us like a, it was like a tidal wave of energy. It was so incredible seeing all those kids on each other's shoulders and singing a song and just going, you know, it's just loving life. And, you know, I really missed that last in the last two years. I think that's what's so beautiful about it too is that, you know, the younger generation, they know all the words to it, you know, and you go and play you go and play a festival or whatever, like, you know, Groove in the Moo, which, you know, particularly young sort of yeah. demographic, and they all know it. Every single one of them knows all the words. It's like, well, isn't that cool, you know? It's like a rite of passage. Paul himself is rapt that these days he's got his own mini festival, Making Gravy, that we've mentioned already. Like everything, it's been COVID-affected of late, but it's steadily becoming a December tradition. It allows him to curate diverse lineups. So far, we've been treated to sets from Steve Earle, Courtney Barnett, Marlon Williams, so many cool acts, introducing artists Paul loves to his fans. Yeah, that's been good. You know, sadly, we got stopped in our tracks last year, but it looks like we're going to be able to do it this year, at least in a couple of cities. Um, yeah, it's, it's like, so I sort of see it as like a, a mini festival or a one-day festival, and it's a chance to... Um, like you said, curate, put acts together that complement and also contrast to each other and then also get them involved somehow in our set. Um, so um, I really, really like that. We, we put a, quite a bit of thought into putting the bill together. And it's, it's also partly uh, determined by who's available and circumstances, but um, they've all worked out well so far. Each year we've had a really... Um, entertaining lineup from to me anyway despite that initial connection that paul talked about in episode one from that first time he played gravy over in canada he says it still took a while to become the live behemoth that it is today it just seemed to happen gradually it seemed to become you know just came more popular over time i've had a few songs like that i mean from little things big things grow was like that too it was um never had commercial radio play but you just sort of notice when people start calling out for a song or or when you play it, you, the reaction sort of just got stronger as the years went on. Um, and then, um, you know, probably over the last 10 years or so, there's, you know, people started to make, make it, or even before that, started to make a bit of a thing about December the 21st and um, Gravy Day. And uh, so that's all just sort of um, built up build up gradually. Sold a lot of tea towels, I believe. <laughs> that was our manager Bill's idea to do a tea towel with a gravy recipe in it. Uh, he's had a lot of good ideas, but, you know, that that's up there with his, one of his best. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of other things I need to ask Paul about gravy while we have him. He's mentioned before in passing that the song's central character, Joe, seems to him, in hindsight, to be very similar indeed to the protagonist of other songs of his, such as To Adore and Love Never Runs On Time. You're looking back at certain songs and you think, oh, yeah, 
there's that it's a, I get the feeling, oh there's that guy again <laughs> there's that guy again that's probably the feeling it's not really conscious but um I, I see him sort of uh, popping up in songs here and there the ones you mentioned to adore love never runs on time how to make gravy how'd rather go blind I, I don't know he's just I just have this picture of this this guy he means well it's probably pretty big hearted but Bit of a fuck up. I wish him well. Now, Gravy name checks Jamaican reggae artist Junior Mervyn, the falsetto singer whose biggest hit was 1976's Police and Thieves, covered by The Clash on their first album. Now, I've heard and read speculation that this was in fact a clue about why Joe was in prison, something to do with theft. But sadly, Paul says the inclusion was more to do with the rhyming scheme. That's is probably most popular song. Uh, I can just imagine. I think I'm probably Junior Reverend would have just come out just as a sort of thing that a, 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 a word that sort of like a rough rhyme with imagine or the same same rhythm. And uh, as soon as I landed on it, I thought, oh, "Police and thieves, it's perfect." So that's what you know. That's why it, it, it came it came into my head and, and, and stuck. Eleanor believes gravy resonates because it hits the mark on so many levels. There's not a lot of artists that can hold an audience with a really long narrative song, you know, and if you think about it, like Paul's had a few of those, you know, Bradman, probably um, other people's houses would be one. Um, even everything's turning to white, you know, so, so he, but with gravy he seemed to just, absolutely hit the sweet spot with that one you know where because it is it's a little short story you know and it just I think that's the other thing it picks up all that family conflict you know like in a in a really loving kind of way so you know so you can kind of tell that there's jostling and people drink too much and you know yeah I just think we all see ourselves in it Paul you know, as a songwriter, holds a whole lot of Australian traditions, you know, within his songs. And, you know, I'm sure there are people who, you know, know about things in Australian history because Paul has put them into song rather than, you know, actually reading about Vincent Langari or, you know, whoever. And I, th I think that's his real talent. And with Gravy, they're not famous events, but he's putting you know, real people in there that you can kind of relate to. And that's why people, you know, that's why the song works for them. And on top of that, it's just a really good sing-along as well, you know. Um, and you get a gravy recipe. <laughs> <laughs> so much, ticks so many boxes, doesn't it? I know, you know. Yeah. I've been known to look at a very wimpy-looking gravy and go, oh, just put some tomato sauce in there and see what happens. Obviously, too, Gravy's success in a way becomes self-perpetuating in that because it's so beloved now and it has to do with Christmas, it's played everywhere, every Christmas, and it all just becomes a cycle. And even after all this time, it's getting bigger and bigger. Gravy's now at well over 5 million streams. It never charted at all until the first week of January in 2018, after all the Christmas spins, when it went to number 54, then it went to number 37 in 2019, and now it charts every year at Christmas. Here's John. I certainly didn't imagine it would become what it's become. And I thought it was odd being on a four-song EP. It kind of sat out there a little bit lonely, wasn't on an album. Um, and so I just remember feeling this is a great song, but I had no idea that it would become this monster um, that it's become and that it would be taken to the heart of so many people. And, you know, between um, our catalogue division and ourselves in our frontline department at EMI, we, you know, we definitely set our sights on the 21st of December. We've kind of, you know, and the nation's now named that Gravy Day, but it's a big moment. And, you know, he should enter the Spotify top 10 this year with that song on that day and it'll you know it was a top 40 song last year and it'll get hopefully inside the top 20 this year so it's it's 
it's just getting bigger and bigger every year. In how to make gravy, there's no, you know, there's no, um, there's nothing you'd cut from it, and and the fact you know that it rolls on with this flowing narrative, it doesn't have a chorus. It it's pretty incredible like that. It's um, it is you know, it's a work of art, a beautiful thing. Paul's manager at the time of Gravy, Rob Barnum, reckons that Gravy's strength, like so many of Paul's songs, is in the lyrics. Well, that's Paul. I mean, you know, from my point of view, the lyrics have been, you know, everything with every song of his. Yeah. Because there's been, most of them have had quite a few um, incarnations, if that's the word. Um, You know, there's been the, even songs with, that started out with the dots or with the messengers or whatever have had you know different versions of them done years later that are quite you know musically different that the lyrics have stayed the same. I just think it's you know it's a battler family celebrating Christmas as best they can. Um, and Paul's really good at doing it from another you know writing songs from a, a third party's point of view and and that's that's one of them. I mean a lot of people think a lot of Paul's songs are you know, about him or about immediately people around him. I mean, it might just have been a story that someone said to him and and he's turned it into that, that song. Let's hear some final thoughts from the crew who worked on Gravy in the studio. Simon Polinsky, the co-producer, is stoked to have been a part of it. It's an absolute buzz, you know. It's, um, it's his calling card now, really, isn't it? Um, uh, and, 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 you know, Pete, Pete will probably tell you this, but he pointed out to me that um, it's the only song that they always play at a show, um, uh, that and Deeper Water. And what was the other one? Um, well, probably To Her Door, I think, um, probably. Um, and I was part of two of them, which is, you know, what an honour that is. You know, So it's good for me. You know, gravy's been good for me too, you know, because always, you know, in, in your career people say, you know, well, what have you done? And so I, you know, it just meant I don't have to mention anything. I can just mention <laughs> that. I can mention that and Treaty, which, you know, I mix Treaty as well. So, and Paul wrote the lyrics for Treaty, as you know. And um, they were, you know, two great feathers to have under one's cap, I suppose. Yeah. So yes, it's um, it never ceases to amaze me, gravy. It's just amazing. And it, someone said it. There's a day named after it now. Bass player Steve Hadley confirms that there is indeed a day named after it. You know, the twenty first of December is Gravy Day, and everyone has a celebration and all that kind of stuff. You know? But um, yeah, it was, it's we none of us thought any of that was going to happen. Um, but it's just sort of become this kind of like big thing you know which i think is great because it's such an aussie song you know and paul's you know paul's lyrics are always amazing you know keyboardist bruce hames reckons that people getting behind joe to have a win has helped gravy's appeal i reckon it's a combination of things it's the same as to her door has tapped into something that has become something i don't know it's just these songs that latch onto people's emotions and um, they're about they're about battlers, which is uh, a bit of a, a thing that people feel for, a bit of an empathy for. People sort of up against the situation a bit. <laughs> I know it's sort of a very attractive thing for me too. You, you just feel for that person. And it just, I don't know, it gets you emotionally involved. That's the only explanation I can have really. Most Christmas songs can be a little bit, um, shall we say, naff or a bit hackneyed because they always take the same kind of um, approach, whereas this is something very different and it sort of taps into another side of Christmas, I suppose. That's the reason it's, you know, it's got something different to say. The guitarist Shane O'Mara, Gravy reminds him of a cool time in his career and still comes in handy to this day. Well, I hate saying thankful. That's a terrible word. But, you know, it was an incredible time to be involved with such an iconic artist with Paul. I thought it was, it was a really interesting time in his songwriting. 
it was a really the band really flex there was a, a synergy in the band where it could flex it, its muscles a bit it had a real deep groove and yeah and had that sort of muscular feel like i said yeah so it was just a great productive time to be to be with him and sort of you know going from that you know flying over by myself to play with Paul, you know, in these little joints, you know, you know, we're just in a van with a driver who was the sound guy. That was thrilling. And then, you know, to end up being involved with such an iconic Australian song is, a, well, personally, it's a thrilling thing. You know, that's the only thing that impresses my students at, you know, Box Hill, where I teach, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, oh platinum gravy. Oh. <laughs> Pete Luskin. Paul's drummer and friend is still blown away by having been a part of a song that's adored by so many Australians. When you find yourself over time being involved in anything that's become part of the culture, it, it you feel the first um, emotion is disbelief because you don't really think. I, I always look at my career as surviving from year to year. <laughs> you know, like just okay, great. Bill, Bill and I have this great thing every. We do a lot of New Year's Eve shows together and we always say to each other as we go on stage, we go, let's see if we can get away with it for another year. And that, you know, that's kind of been what you feel like your career's been like for 42 years. So to be attached to something that's so iconic is, um, it's, it's disbelief, but it's an awesome privilege. I actually feel like, you know, if nothing else happens in my life, it's just great. There's a few songs of Paul's that... Um, I've real. I mean, I I love having been involved in so many great records for so long and playing with Paul for so long. But there's a few things that are just really, really that make you feel incredibly proud to be a part of. That's one of them. Um, the Charles Perkins song we did, um, "Bastard Like Me," just the emotion of that song, the way it was delivered, and just a few other things along the way that have just been. They've just touched people and have been you you you've been a part of the um, momentum of that recording at the time. It's that's brought whatever emotion and connection you have to music is now there forever. And it's great to know I may not ever be rich, but I've, I'm going to leave a few things behind for the Martians to uncover years to come, you know. And we can't forget Lindsay Field, the producer of the Spirit of Christmas compilations, who essentially was the catalyst for Paul Riding Gravy, and he too is humbled by this involvement. Everybody can relate to that experience. Um, and, you know, I remember years and years later watching when he did that tour with Neil Finn and they were singing each other's songs and Neil Finn was saying, oh, I don't know what the fuck this is. You know, how am I, you know, here I am singing this song. It's got no chorus. It's got da 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 And then he just said, God, I wish I'd written it. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, Paul's always had that ability to, really touch people's hearts. And that's always been the criteria that I've used when I've given briefs to artists to record tracks. You know, I just say, look, you choose what you want. I don't particularly care how you do it, but you've got an opportunity to do something that's outside your the brief of your record company or your even your career, you know, even your stylistic limitations of, you know, your image that you want to present to the, the, the punters, but I, I want it to touch my heart. I want it to touch the heart of the people who listen to it. They want them to be moved by it. And, you know, if, I, if you think of she, in so many of the songs that Paul writes, like you can put your shoes under my bed, just the, the sentiments are things that, you know, things that you say, God, I wish I'd said that, you know, because it explains exactly how I feel. And, you know, the angst and the pain of that, you know, Joe singing that song, per, Joe per se, Paul, but, you know, his ability to put himself in that position and give it words and an appropriate melody, which was just, you know, screaming with passion. Sometimes it's serendipity when you just find yourself in the right time, place and situation. And I think back to that little shed, which is probably doesn't exist anymore. I don't know. And 
and that that the birth of a of an institution because it has become an institution now i think the majority of australians they hear those first two chords and that strumming guitar and they go ah <laughs> i know exactly what that is and in the concerts that i've been to where paul's played that the the reaction that you feel around you with that when that and it you know it, it touches me and the song still touches me you know i'm, I'm still waiting for the sequel but hopefully he'll write something one day, you know, but, but uh, I, I don't know. It's like the old Marty Robbins, El Paso. It was such a, a signature song. And then when he did a follow-up to it, you know, the streets of El Paso or something, it just wasn't the same, you know, so I don't know whether Paul would go there or not. Surely there would never be a sequel to Gravy, Paul? I want to write a song... Um... Uh, you know, I would love, I've had it in my mind for a while, it'd be great, great to do a follow-up to How to Make Gravy from, uh, from Rita, with Rita's, Rita, Rita being the voice. I don't know if it'll, that'll happen, but uh, there could be a, a, a sequel. Oh, it's on. Gravy too. Naturally, we'll leave the final word about How to Make Gravy with Paul. I feel vaguely strange about grilling him like this on one song he wrote 25 years ago when he's penned literally dozens of songs I adore and know backwards. But the mystery of Gravy's huge, enduring appeal amongst Australians lives on. Paul reckons it's just one of those things and it's probably best not to stress too much about it. You don't know what... Uh, that's you know, that's uh, the beauty of it. You don't know... Um, I've never... You write songs and you record them and send them out. And then after that, they're kind of out of your hands. So, um, and they do things unexpectedly. Yeah. So, um, I like that. I, you know, we're sort of we're kind of in the risk taking or sort of gam. You know, we we, we nothing's nothing's a sure sure shot. Um, it's not the way I write. Um, I don't really write with a particular aim. I just sort of, like I said, I follow a voice. A voice starts in my head and I follow it, um, which is, you know, what happened with Gravy. So I end up with quite diverse songs and then some of them some of them get popular and some of them less so, but it, it's really out of, out, of, out of my hands and I like it that way. I like it. I like, you know, I, I, I really like, I like it, but I fully accept that chance is, is a big part of life. Randomness, chaos, and we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen next minute. We'll end this rewind on that philosophical note, but before we go, it would be remiss of me not to play the original 1996 version of How to Make Gravy, the five-minute-plus EP version not the truncated version from Songs from the South, but the proper unabridged original in all of its glory. Hello, Dan. Joe here I hope you're keeping well It's the 21st of December Now they're ringing the last bell If I get good behavior I'll be out of here by July Won't you kiss my kids on Christmas Day? Please don't let them cry for me. I guess the brothers are driving down from Queensland And Stella's flying in from the coast 
gonna be a hundred degrees, even more maybe. But that won't stop the road. Who's gonna make the gravy now? I bet it won't taste the same. Just that flour, salt, a little red wine. Don't forget a dollar for tomato sauce. For sweetness and that extra tang. And give my love to Angus and the Frank and Dolly. Tell them all I'm sorry. I screwed up this time. And look up the reader. Christmas morning when I'm standing alive. I hear Mary's got a new boyfriend. I hope he can hold his own. <laughs> Do you remember the last one? What was his name again? Uh, just a little too much cologne. And Roger, you know I'm even gonna miss Roger. Cause there's sure as hell no one in here I wanna fight. I pray the baby Jesus. Have a Merry Christmas. I'm really gonna miss this. All the treasure and the trash. Later in the evening. Thanks so much for joining us on this Rewind. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much to Paul for being part of this. Thanks to the band, Pete, Steve, Shane, Bruce, as well as Simon, Lindsay, John, Eleanor, Bill, Alex, Greta, Vicar and Linda. I really enjoyed chatting with you all. Plus a massive thanks to Mariam Dearbert EMI for your help pulling this together. As always, a complete pleasure. I'd like to dedicate this Rewind to the memory of Spencer P. Jones. Gone but never forgotten. I also need to thank the Euphony team, Craig and Masty, the producers, and Zig, my engineer, who does all the heavy lifting to make me sound competent, as well as our network partner, Yamaha Headphones. Please tell any friends or family members who you reckon might dig this rewind. The word of mouth spread is so important. But please also rate and review Rewind if you get a spare minute. We really want to keep growing so we can do more seasons. There's a heap of past rewinds available now that you can check out at your leisure for free on all podcast providers. And we've got a heap more in the pipeline. Hope to catch you soon. Rewind with Steve Bell is a Euphony podcast produced by Craig Trawick and Andrew Mars. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar. For more Euphony podcasts, visit our website, Spotify, Apple, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.